Welcome to the Ron Huntley Leadership Podcast, helping leaders be a positive catalyst on the people they support, the organizations they serve, and the communities they live. This podcast will make you think, laugh, and grit your teeth with new determination to make your parish or business a place of transformation, passion, and purpose. If you're still breathing, you are powered for impact. In today's episode entitled, Holiness is Not Becoming Some Kind of Religious Nutcase, Father Stephen Langridge of Richmond, UK, shares his insights as both a diocesan and national vocations director. I had the privilege of working with Father Stephen and his team as their coach, and I must confess, I learned more from him than he ever learned from me. This episode is filled with rich wisdom. Enjoy. Lift off and the clock has started. Depending on where you're tuning in from around the world, vocations may be an issue for you. I certainly know that that is the case here for us in Canada. Our guest today is Father Stephen Langridge, who has spent 10 years as the Diocesan Vocation Director and five years as the National Conference Director for National Conference of Vocation Directors of England and Wales. Welcome, Father Stephen. Thank you, Ron. It's uh, fantastic to be here. I'm wondering. You know, 2000, approximately 2001 is when you would have entered into that part of your call in your priesthood. What, what were the major issues you guys were facing back in 2001? It seems so long ago that it's hard to remember. But what I would say is that um, when I started doing vocations work, I, I've always had a, uh, I guess, obviously, a great love for the priesthood. When I started doing vocations work, what surprised me was just how reactive it tended to be. People responded to vocations. In the past, um, I mean, thinking of the priesthood would just be put in contact with the vocations director. They would fill in paperwork. This is what happened to me. Uh, I met the vocations director once. I filled in some paperwork, and then I had an interview, uh, and then I heard I was accepted. So there was no sense of accompaniment, no sense of um, fostering vocations. You just responded. And that's, that worked. That worked when there were lots of vocations. But in, by 2020, that was no longer the case. There weren't lots of vocations. And the practice of waiting for somebody to telephone you uh, was not going to work anymore. And what struck me was that there was no sense of, of vision for vocations ministry. So that nobody really was talking in terms of how to proactively promote, how to set targets, uh, what needed to be done, how to reach people. One or two uh, vocation directors, my colleagues, had the thought of um, let's engage an advertising firm and we'll advertise uh, vocations and that's how we'll do it. But it really didn't work. First of all, because advertising firms don't get Catholic Church. Uh, so there was a campaign in one diocese, which was, I found very funny. Uh, it was a photograph of somebody doing rock climbing, and the caption was, on Sundays, they'll hang off his every word. <laughs> My knowledge <laughs> didn't get any vocations. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd say at, in, by 2020, it was still responding. It was still managing. And therefore, the numbers of vacations were, uh, weren't good. They were, they were going down. Oh, no, I don't mean 2020. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 2000. Yes. Gotcha. 2000. Okay. I just wasn't sure. Okay. Yeah. 
in the year in the year two thousand, the the situation was that nothing had changed. Mm. So vocation directors were managing vocations. They were waiting for uh, people to to telephone them in the way that they'd always done, and but those phone calls were fewer and fewer and fewer. Right. And what needed to happen, and what we I think we achieved to a certain extent, was to establish a vision for vocations ministry, and a vocations ministry that was much more proactive. It takes a long time to change the direction of a boat. Uh, we didn't manage it completely, even though I was doing the work for 10 years. But um, vocations ministry is a lot healthier today, I'd say, than it was in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. It's, it's neat that you say that. There's a couple of things I'm picking up on. One of them was that, you know, it, it sounded like they were in maintenance mode in, in essence, right? They, they just dialing it in, waiting for people to respond. And, and then you said, you know, that wasn't going to work anymore because they didn't have vision. Everything, whether it's turning around a church, whether it's turning around vocations committee, whether it's turning around a company, it really starts with vision. I love that you're speaking into that because vision is an issue of leadership. And, uh, and we were lacking leadership. They were managing vocations up to that point. Exactly. And they were so, yeah. And in managing vocations, it meant that their work was primarily uh, discussing internal issues about how to fund things and just just management day to day management questions without really sticking their head above the parapet and thinking, okay, there's a whole world of young people out there. How do I reach them? Mm. There was no sense of of measurement, no sense of target, uh, and yeah, I'd say no sense of leadership. A lot of good men, very very good men, doing doing the vocations work, mm. but. It was out of a management model that the church in England was in a management mode. So it's yes. natural that vocations work be management as well. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And and I, I love the, the, the just the recognition that despite, you know, although being in there 10 years doing incredible work, we still didn't arrive. Like turning things around like that, that have been entrenched in a particular way of doing things and re-engaging with a culture that has changed so rapidly. Boy, that's not snapping your fingers or hiring a fancy ad campaign. I mean, that is, that is deep leadership work of changing culture and addressing a culture that has kind of passed us by in many ways and trying to become relevant again, where perhaps we've lost our relevancy. Yeah. It is wrong, but, and it's more than that in a sense, because it's, it's a real process of learning. Um, in that time, I learned so much. I'd, I'd been parish priest for the first part i was still a parish priest um humanly speaking i think uh i could say that we were very successful in the parishes that that, that i ran um young congregations growing numbers but when i started doing the vocational work what i found was that um i could see what the problem was but I didn't know the solution. You know, I didn't have the language to interpret it. So I could see that the deck chairs were being moved, but I, I'd never been admitted to the, the, the sort of captain's uh, office to, to see the maps and, the, and the, the steering wheel and that sort of thing. So I had to learn what leadership was because I, in seminary we had never been formed for that. And I think it's still an issue at that level that in seminaries we're formed to to be shepherds, to care for the sheep, but we're not formed to be leaders and we're not formed to be fishermen. 
So we, the expectation is that you're very good at caring for the sheep and that you're attentive and you answer the phone and things run well and efficiently. But there's not really a sense of being formed to engage with a society that's moved on. And there's not a sense of being formed to work with and through other people using their gifts and their talents uh, and allowing them to flourish in serving the mission of Christ in the church as well. Mm. So at that time, I was very much learning. You know, I was very much a novice, making mistakes. Um, and <clears throat> it wasn't really until I had the chance to look back that I think I fully understood the journey that we'd gone on. So I wouldn't even say that I was leading the, uh, the, the, the journey at that point. Mm. But I learned to recognize it afterwards, if that makes sense. It sure does. And it speaks to, like, uh, I, don't, I don't know what your position on this. I don't know what the right answer is of this, but I know, and I've never been in the seminary. Uh, and I, I'm not sure how much leadership training should be in the seminary and or post-seminary, like maybe, you know, five years a priest or, you know, I don't know. Because, you know, my, what I see happening is, Priests are formed in the sem or seminarians are formed, and then they come out as priests and they're being mentored by people who also haven't been formed in leadership and don't. And so there really isn't even like if you grow in leadership, it's almost an accident. Is that fair? I think so. Yeah, absolutely. If you're formed to be a shepherd and you've got sheep, you'll flourish. But when there aren't sheep, unless you know how to go fishing, you're not going to flourish. Right. And I've got a friend who's a Baptist minister who says that 60% of his formation was in leadership and 40% was in scripture. So 40, 60, that was, that was the percentage. Our formation, as I say, is a formation to pastor the sheep. But St. Paul says, we're called to be apostles, we're called to be evangelists, we're called to be prophets, we're called to be teachers, we're called to be shepherds. And the problem is that sure, in a maintenance church, where you've got a full church, people go to Mass on Sunday, it's a sort of Christian culture, shepherds and teachers will flourish. That's what you need. But it'll suck the life out of an apostle and an evangelist. And if you have a prophet, in a maintenance church, then you're going to have big problems because he's going to be telling all those comfortable people just where they've gone wrong. The gospel response to Christ when, when he does that is that they call him to be crucified. Right. And I think that's why sometimes priests have difficulties after ordination. Young priests have difficulties after ordination. Either it's not, not life-giving because they've given their life to Christ, they want to make a difference, They've not quite been shown how to, but they need to learn. And now, thank God, more and more priests are trying to learn how to become leaders. Yes. Um, or they've gone into a situation where they just don't fit. You know, I, yes. I never ask a prophet to be a shepherd. Ask a prophet to be a hospital chaplain because there's nothing more engaging for a prophet than to be called out in the middle of the night to go and save a soul who's just about to die. You know, he, he wants to be there. That's, that's a great ministry for, for prophets. But uh, don't put a prophet into a maintenance parish. It's not going to work. 
It's funny you say that because I'm thinking about one particular situation. It's very much that, and it is been it has been a struggle. Uh, I hadn't thought about it from that perspective, and so that that's you just equipped me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and what that reveals is that those who have leadership responsibilities in the church by virtue of their office, yes, so the bishop uh, and those responsible for appointments, they. In the past, all that was required was shepherd. Now, I think they themselves have to learn, and, and I, I'm not sure that they will recognize this, that they need to understand the gifting, the talents, the charisms of each individual in order to bring out the best from them. Mm-hmm. Because it can't be a sausage machine. It can't be that, that we just expect everyone to be exactly the same. And we can just move them about. People need to be known if they're going to be, to be able to flourish. But there's a leadership question at that level as well. People need to be known if they're expected to flourish. Boy, I hope somebody tweets that and copies me because I want to retweet it because that is that's a power line right there. It's so true. That is so true. And so many people don't feel known. They they feel like they're a utility that's being moved around a chessboard and they don't feel cared for. And when we don't feel cared for, it sucks the life clean out of us. Uh, the spiritual life, the emotional life, the energy, the passion, gone. And so many times, I've seen young priests with so much capacity and potential have the life drained right out of them through that type of formation experience in the early years. It breaks my heart. Yeah, no, it's very sad. And I, I've seen it. And I've seen young people who perhaps have considered the priesthood who recognize that that's not going to be possible in their diocese and have held back from applying or they've applied to, to a different diocese. So we have a, a generation of youngsters coming forward who are... The maintenance model hasn't produced the, the new generation. So the young people in our church, young adults in our churches today are largely people who've had some form of awakening in their faith, either a conversion experience or they've been evangelized by a specific group or a friend. Yes. And so there's a new commitment within them mm-hmm. and a new desire to see the church flourish within them. And of course, that that slightly clashes with with um, with their experience of maintenance churches. Mm. So, but it is quite hopeful because because they want to make a difference, and I think wanting to make a difference is 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 the first stage in making a difference. I agree. And imagine if a bishop who had an exciting vision and could articulate it and was constantly articulating where we're going and why we're going there. That would really engage those young men who are considering, who want to make a difference. Like, I need a leader I can follow who has a vision that's worth laying down your life for. It's certainly not, hey, let's just make sure that we do a, continue to do a good job with the people we have until we don't exist anymore. Like, that's not going to get people of capacity with passion. And, you know, you talk about that from a vocations perspective. People will hold back. They'll look other places. I've noticed that from donors, too. There are donors who love the church, who love Christ, who won't give their money to their current diocese because they see how it's being run, and they don't have any confidence in it. 
And so donors as well, looking for a vision and passion that's that's consistent with their understanding of what God can do. Exactly, exactly. People want to make a difference, and they know that they're called to make a difference. There's a, well, I don't know if you speak Spanish. There's a great Spanish phrase, and that is, um, in this world, in este mundo, hay que pisar fuerte. We have to pisar is tread, and pisar fuerte is to tread hard. You know, when we walk along, we shouldn't be floating above the surface. But we should be leaving, leaving traces, leaving footprints. So we, we have to, 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 to have an effect as, as we go through life. Um, and that's, I think, a passion that has to be flourished and uh, brought out and, and flourish from people. We have to allow people to, to really have an impact, let them see the impact and celebrate the impact that they can have. I get, I'm getting all, I'm getting all excited inside just talking to you again because this really does get me excited. It was so fun visiting your church in England that that weekend, that day, and and seeing your congregation, seeing your hospitality, seeing uh, how active people were in worship, seeing your people that were running Alpha and leading things. Like you really have done an amazing job with your team, just igniting what is possible at the local parish level. And you seem to have a charism of drawing young people in. I've always worked with young people and I believe in young people. And um, sometimes they frustrate the hell out of me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> As well. Um, yeah, this Christmas, I had so many cards and letters from youngsters in the parish just thanking me for my ministry. It was really very humbling. Um, but yeah, the, the Lord has blessed me with an ability, I think, to connect in, in some way with, with, with young people. But from my perspective, all I'm doing is allowing them to connect with Christ, to point them towards Christ, to connect with others so that they have a big network, and then to encourage them to make a difference. So... Yeah, some young people from this parish got together. One of them was asked to help with social media for the canonization of uh, John Henry Newman in Rome, so this big uh, event. In the end, what came out of that was that he founded a company that ran, from the English point perspective, ran the whole um, event of the canonization, including get-togethers with Prince Charles, and, and now he and his little team are having an enormous impact on the the social media in, uh, um, internet presence um, of the church in the Wales and how it engages with society. But that just comes from al- allowing people to, or encouraging people to to recognise their gifts and to go ahead and do it. Freedom have- to flourish, right? My first sermon here was, I picked up something Bill Hybels had said, which is that there are three sorts of priests or ministers. There are um, risk takers, caretakers, and undertakers. And I always think a caretaker eventually becomes an undertaker because he buries his own parish. So you have to be a risk taker. You have to, to trust other people. And if God doesn't want it to flourish, it won't flourish. Yeah, fair enough. I can't think of too many situations God doesn't want to flourish. You know, there's just so many great... I've never been in a parish that doesn't have great people. Now, there can be poor behaviors. 
But as soon as we stop tolerating those and start rewarding the ones that we want to see and, and cast a vision that's worth laying down your life for, I always see people rise to the occasion. People want to make a difference. And so as your vocations director, this is what you're seeing. You served 10 years working hard to out of a place of vision, not having all the leadership skills you later began to develop, but making all like, what about those five years? I know three of them were full-time uh, on that national level. Tell me a little bit about that. What were you learning there? Because now it wasn't just your diocese. It was England and Wales. What were you seeing there? Is it the same thing everywhere? I'm pretty well. It was the same thing uh, uh, everywhere. There were some anomalies, so occasionally... Um, You'd, you'd get things like a really outstanding vocation director also being made full-time chaplain to the biggest hospital in the diocese, which really made his work impossible. Yes. So that, that time, uh, as chair of the vocation directors, it was a good time to really inspire the new vocation directors, introduce induction courses for them, um, have a sense of of we need to pull together, be heading the same direction. So we rewrote the vocation director's handbook, and yeah, I think when I when I hung up my vocation director's boots, um, I think people were uh, much more positive. Really believed that there could be vocations again. Had a much better understanding of what needed to be done to encourage young vocations. Um, the very first vocation directors conference I ever went to as a vocations promoter, uh, they were complaining about um, about evangelization. By the time I left, the, the evangelization was the, always the main topic on the agenda. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think things are, are healthier than than they were. <laughs> That's amazing. Well. What advice, because like, honestly, as you're describing England and, and the situations you faced in 2000, I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure that's Canada now. Like, yeah. I, and I shouldn't say that. I don't know the rest of the country, but I don't, and here in, in our diocese, and no disrespect to the previous bishop or the current bishop, but I just don't hear a lot. I don't see a lot. I have a son who's 21. Now, with that said, he has been invited to, uh, to something at one point, and he doesn't feel called, but he has been asked to kind of engage. So I guess there are some things going on, but I don't get a sense as a parish level. I don't get a sense that there's, it's a priority for us. And so again, it sounds very much for me, my experience of it as an active parishioner feels a lot like 2000 when you came into the scene. Um, yeah. What's, do you, as a parish priest now, how does... How does that factor into your leadership and people's discernment as, or, or even discipling them? How does it factor in? I think the shortage of vocations, the perceived shortage of vocations, is actually the tip of the iceberg. That's, yes. It's not a crisis of vocations. It's a crisis of holiness. And we can see a lack of um, vocations to the priesthood or to the religious life. But that suggests that people getting married haven't ever considered that marriage is a vocation, if, that people in general aren't thinking about vocations. So 
we need to recover the sense of that call to holiness, which is universal, and that we're called to discern how we as individuals are supposed to live out that call to holiness. Mm. If we can get people to really come to life in their faith, engage with Christ, they'll start asking themselves, or asking him, Lord, here I am, send me, what is it you want me to do? Mm. And many of those will then recognize that marriage itself is a vocation, but not just something which is a sort of natural disposition and a good thing, but it's, it's a vocation. And every vocation is a call to lay down your life for something, to imitate Christ in that way. So in a vocation to marriage, you're called to lay down, your, you imitate Christ by laying down your life for your spouse. And in that way, the love of Christ is manifest in the relationship that you have with your spouse. So that your children, when, when you talk to them about God's love, they know what it means because they've seen it lived out in the marriage. So if we can transform married life and family life, then in the future, vocations will come. Vocations of priesthood to the religious life will, will, will come. So these world crises, as one saint said, are crises of sanctity. Yes. Describe for our listeners if there's people, because I know we have people that maybe might not be as engaged in, in their faith, but, but are engaged in leadership. How would you describe, if you were to describe holiness, how would you describe that for them? Holiness is living a relationship with Christ that affects every dimension of your life. So that you desire to present everything that you are, everything that you do, um, all your relationships, your friendships, your leisure time, that you present that as it were as an offering to Christ. The holiness is, is that intimacy with Christ that then leads you to see every aspect of your life, not in a two-dimensional sense or, or a black and white sense, but now in sort of full color, because, because Christ's love touches every single thing that, 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 that you do. Mm. Um, when, when we're baptized, we're told that we now share Christ's priesthood, we share his prophetic ministry, we share his kingship. We share his kingship because we're children of, of the same father. We share his prophetic ministry because we're called to bear witness to the truth, to, the, to his word. And we're shown his priesthood because the essence of priesthood in the Old Testament is to offer sacrifice. And the word sacrifice means to make holy. So we're called to make every aspect of our life holy. Every aspect of our life, we're called to offer it to, to, to the Father through Christ and the unity of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so I would say that, that these days, you meet a lot of people who think of a caricature of holiness. You know, if I say to somebody in the parish, you've got to be holy, what they hear is Father Stephen saying, I have to say the rosary every day. If I say you've got to be very holy, what they hear is Father Stephen wants me to say two rosaries every day. <laughs> That's not what holiness is. Holiness is, um, is not becoming some sort of strange person or, or religious nutcase. It's actually seeing every single thing that you do, whether it's, I don't know, whether it's 
mashing up the 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 uh, stewed apple to feed your baby, mm-hmm. um, or shifting billions of pounds worth of, of stocks and on, on, on the market. Every single thing that you do is a thing that you put the love of God into. You do well because you're a child of God, and you offer it to the Father. Hmm. That's awesome. That's a beautiful definition and 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 it really does help us to see like i'm just thankful and for some people like you're right the the word holiness can just be weird like oh that's a a religious weirdo and that's not what you're saying it's like no if you're an investment banker you can be holy if you're a stay-at-home mom you can be holy if if you're a pharmaceutical salesperson be holy if you're a priest be holy because you can be unholy priest you can be an unholy tax collector you can be an unholy mom be holy be in yeah. And it's a message that we have to, to really get, get across to people again and again and again. Mm-hmm. That um, holiness is not the preserve of a few, and it's not the preserve of nuns and priests. It's quite the opposite. That each one of us, that we're called to have our life transformed by the presence of God, by recognizing God's, God, God's presence. And we, we all have a role to play, and we all have a, a part to play mm-hmm. uh, in that. And we communicate holiness to others. So if you bear the love of Christ in your heart, then it's the love of Christ that you communicate through your love. So you can thank by others through your work and through your relationship. So at what point does a person become holy enough that they can start doing some mission stuff? Like what comes first? Mission or holiness? Is one more important than the other? Uh, if you're holy, you don't have to worry about mission. Like, Tell me a little bit about that. Um, I think Pope John Paul II had a phrase that we call to breathe in sanctity and breathe in holiness and breathe out mission uh, it's a great phrase the two things have to go together so you don't get qualified in 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 mission or you don't re- reach a certain sort of point of holiness that now the balloon's going to pop if you don't go and 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 have an outlet for it um when you have something good then you share it with others it's the most natural thing in the world and when you recognize that a relationship with Christ is good, um, then you share that. And when you deepen in your relationship with Christ and see how, um, how Christ affects different aspects of your life, you share that as well. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think testimony is so powerful, because you can't argue with somebody's testimony. Mm-hmm. But also because when we give our testimony, when we give witness to the power of Christ, the love of Christ in our life, but actually honoring what Christ is doing within us. Mm. It's why we should be thankful, you know, when, when people share their testimony, um, when Christ is transforming an individual family, a parish, a diocese, those things should be celebrated because, because that's honoring the gift of God. It's not, we're not doing it. God is doing it. So I think I think we have to recover a spirit of thanksgiving in the church as well. Mm. A spirit of petition, of, of intercession, and a spirit of thanksgiving. Next door to me here, as you might remember, that there's, a, there's an evangelical church. And they're always coming up with amazing stories of conversion and, and, and God acting in their lives. And I say to our people, you know, that's because A, they ask, and B, they thank. Yes. They, they, they celebrate and, and they thank. And we have to start doing the same. 
ask and it will be given to you. But if you don't ask, it won't be given to you. And if you don't thank, then you won't inspire other people to ask. If you don't celebrate and thank, you won't inspire other people to ask. And so the 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 the, the well of grace, in a sense, gets exhausted. Yes, that's beautifully said. So on that note, I would love for you to take a second and think about it. Not more than a second. No. I'd love for you to share a story of transformation that you've seen in your church in the last couple of years. One of the ones that, that you've, that touches your heart. Can you share with us a story of conversion? There are so many individual stories. Um, the biggest story isn't, isn't an individual story. It's the story in a sense of the parish that this parish had had a very difficult history before I came. And um, when I came, people were angry. They were hurting, they were upset. And we, we wanted to get a baseline assessment. So we used the Gallup ME25 membership engagement assessment. And we found that 48% of our parishioners hated their parish. Two years later, so that 48% of the person hated the parish meant for me, how can I go full steam ahead on evangelization because I'm bringing people into a toxic atmosphere? So we had to work on the, on the spirit of the parishioners and on the conversion of the, of the parishioners. And that's what we did. And all our parishioners now who were here at that time We'll talk about just how different the parish is, how the parish itself is unrecognisable. People know each other by name. People care for each other. People reach out to each other. People, nobody has been left abandoned during the COVID-19 lockdown. Um, people want to know how everyone else is doing. Then they're not sort of getting into, they're not nosy or or... Um, you know, there's nothing negative, negative about it, but there's a great sense of identity and a great sense that, that God is acting in the parish and they want to be part of that. But I think the parish story is, is the most powerful one. There are lots of individuals, you know, people who had no faith who've come to faith, people who've, who've had, um, had tragedy in their lives or who've despaired or been angry. Uh, some people angry with the church who, who then through um through the experience of that they've had of kindness and enough thought have just re-engaged and, and a, a new joy in their faces there are lots of stories like that but the biggest story is this sort of total transformation of the culture of the parish have you done an me25 survey since that one that had 48 percent disengaged we've done it twice so the oh. second time we did it was 2018 years later and we were we were just about average, what you'd expect for, for an average Catholic parish on all levels. And the most recent one was at the beginning of 2020. And we were, um, on the level of, of engaged parishioners, we were way above it, an average Catholic parish. But what we found was that in one specific area, we were quite weak, which was spiritual engagement. The people were engaged in the parish, they were engaged at lots of different levels, but their sense of a personal relationship with God wasn't strong within them. Mm. And of course, the great thing was that 
identifying that, we could then address it. So we ran during lockdown uh, a series of talks that people could access online, uh, and we, we devised a prayer course. That was an 11-session prayer course, and the first time we did it, we had more than 10% of our Christians joined it, um, and we've just started a new one, and a quarter of our Christians have joined it. So that's 35% of the Christians would have done a prayer course. <laughs> and that's just to address that one thing, that that, uh, that was a weakness that we discovered. Incredible intentionality in your leadership, looking at data, <laughs> Taking the time to listen through that and then to chart your course to move the needle. That is so cool. One of the things as we were getting ready for this discussion beforehand, as you mentioned, you had, what, seven conversions during the pandemic so far? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the pandemic has been a wonderful opportunity for people just to, to look again at what their priorities are, what's the meaning of life. Um, I think somebody told me that that words like does God exist and what is prayer were among the top Googled expressions during the pandemic. Mm. That's lockdown. And so people had questions. And so we found that sometimes one lady who'd been to Mass here every Sunday for 14 years and had never become a Catholic, the fact that now people were unable to receive Holy Communion made her think about the fact that she never received Holy Communion and, and what that actually meant. And so she was received just before Christmas uh, with great joy. She's Australian, and we were able to Zoom the Mass so that her family in Australia could, could watch it as well. <laughs> that's awesome. And that's had an impact then upon the family in Australia, some of whom are lapsed Catholic. <laughs> we had, just after lockdown started, uh, a young lad in his 20s, um, contacted me about becoming a Catholic and our first meeting was was a Zoom uh, uh, meeting and I really thought you know this isn't going to work but he was so enthusiastic I was able to put, a, put him in contact with another young lad his age uh, and they went through the catechism together um, so they sit on the park bench and, and uh, with social distancing and go through the catechism. Uh, he was received just after Christmas there was a young girl again in her 20s um, who all her catechesis was done online and um, she was received. Um, we have another fellow who's going to be received at Easter and he's a really interesting character because our first contact with him was um, we were on a night shelter in the winter and he was fitting. He'd come to the night shelter, he was homeless, he was fitting, he had uh, alcohol, he was an alcoholic. And we were able to help him, and he got his life back together. He, he um, uh, left alcohol behind, joined the AA. Um, and it turns out that he was a major advertising executive. He was a Cambridge graduate. And everything had just fallen apart through alcohol in his life. And, and so we've taken it quite slowly with him at his desire. But he joins us now for Bible study. He joins us every Mass Sunday. He sends me little messages. And so he's got Hebrew received at Easter. Others who perhaps were baptized Catholics but never really grew up in the faith, they've been able to be confirmed. Um, and we're just about to start our second online alpha. So the first online alpha uh, was great. It had a lot of people from all over, you know, former prisoners now in 
in Holland, in, um, in Madrid, people in the States joining us for that. So that was an experience. We've reflected upon that experience, and now we're really targeting those who are completely on church for a network of young people in the stars. We've, we've basically said to the young people, this is how you do it. We're handing it over to you. You can do it. We'll be in the background. We'll support you. We'll mentor your group leaders. We'll give you all the support that you need. But if you take this, you will see God working. And now that I mean, they're really buzzing. That there's a spirit <laughs> of, of of desire to see this. People are praying for it. And I'm sure we're going to have hundreds of people join this 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 online alpha. So seven so far, seven so far. We've got some way to go yet. <laughs> so far, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't shut the books yet. We're still hard at work. Father Stephen, I think your sharing today will be a real encouragement for all of those uh, priests and parish leaders who are struggling with energy, struggling with passion during this lockdown and the, the this extended COVID experience that we're all in. But I hear a lot of hope. I hear a lot of optimism in your voice. And I'm hoping that... that yeah, maybe just a last word of encouragement to those that might be on the fence, not sure whether where they're at or what to do. Just a last word of encouragement for those priests or parish leaders. What would you say to them? I'd say two things. One is be a risk taker, another caretaker or undertaker. The other is never forget the value of dry bones. Can these son of man, can these bones live? Of course they can't live. There's no they're dry bones. They've got their flesh on them. And yet, prophesy. So Ezekiel has his part to play. He's got to do something. Prophesy, son of man. And he does what's asked of him. And then he sees the sinews forming, the skin, the clattering. They all come back together. And this enormous army is raised up again. And it begins with uh, uh, Ezekiel listening to the Lord, responding to what the Lord asks of him, even though in his heart he believes it's not possible. He says, he doesn't say, yes, yes, it can happen. He says, you know, oh, son of man, can these bones live? You know, oh Lord. He won't even go answer the question. <laughs> he does what's asked of him. And so that's the thing. Just, just put yourself in God's hands, do what's asked of you, um, and those bones will live. Amen. Father Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. I've enjoyed every minute. It's good to see you. God bless. see exciting change happening in parts of the church all over the world. And the goal of these podcasts is help to inspire important conversations. Please don't catch yourself getting in that cycle of chronic complaining, but rather be part of the solution. Let's get behind what God is doing with our time, talent, and our treasure. Be sure to share, comment, and rate this podcast. Thanks for your time. I want to encourage you, as you lead this week, be faithful to God and generous to others. See you next time, and remember, if you're still breathing, you are powered for impact.